Good morning, everybody, and that includes uh, those of you who are gathered here uh, out on the lawn this morning on a beautiful spring morning, and it also includes those of you who are joining us from home uh, via our live stream uh, broadcast. And I'm grateful, as always, to be uh, able to open the scriptures this morning and have that unspeakable privilege of being able to explain them and unpack them uh, to your heart and also to my own. Uh, and we're in a series at the moment on uh, the theme of the, the kingdom that the Lord Jesus inaugurated and ushered in. And, and what we're doing is looking at the nature and character of that kingdom. And this morning we're going to be looking at something I'm calling the posture of the kingdom. The posture of, of the kingdom. The way that people who approach the rule of God on earth, the kingdom of God, the posture, the attitude that they have, the way that they cry out to God, the things that they cry out for, and how God answers their prayer. Because there are five stories in the chapter that we're, going, we're about to read, Luke uh, 18. And each one of them is... In some, in some ways, it presents a contrast between two very different kinds of people. There's a story about a widow and a judge. There's a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. There's a story about some children and some disciples. There's a story about two rich young rulers, in a way. And there's a story about a blind man and the crowd around him. And in each of these stories, there's a very clear contrast between the two types of characters. And in most of them, the, the contrast is actually down to the, to the fact that the kingdom people cry out. Some of the people in these stories issue a cry that the others do not, and it has a huge amount to teach us about the nature of the rule of God, the way that God comes and works on the earth and the way that that the way of the people that he calls to himself. And so as we read it, I trust that you'll see uh, the people of the people God favors in these stories are actually the ones that cry out. And so we're going to read the entire entire chapter, Luke chapter 18, uh, beginning at ver verse 1. I encourage you to follow along as you'll find the text uh, in your worship guide. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so she won't beat me down with her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he'll give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the, the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, 
I thank you that I am not like, the, like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. And Jesus called to them, to, called to him, saying, Let the children come to me and don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all those I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, a person, to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who won't receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they didn't grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be quiet but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. 
This chapter is a description of the people who enter the kingdom of God and the people who don't. And, and it does it by means of a series of contrasts in five stories. And each of those stories contains a contrast between two kinds of people. And the kingdom people cry out, right? There, there's a widow and a judge in verses 1 to 8. And, and the widow cries out for justice. Give me justice against my adversaries. And the judge doesn't cry at all. The judge doesn't care at all, actually. He doesn't actually do anything. Eventually, he only gives her what she wants because she keeps badgering her. Him. But the, but the kingdom person, the widow, is the one who cries out. In the second story, there is a Pharisee and the, and the tax collector. And again, the kingdom person is the one who cries out. The tax collector beats his breast and cries out for forgiveness. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Pharisee, on the other hand, doesn't cry out at all. He, he's quite reserved. Because he doesn't think he's got anything to be forgiven for. So he just stands there and says, well, I'm, I'm a good person. I, I'm, not like, I'm not like this guy, this scoundrel who rips people off. I'm quite moral. I don't do awful things. I'm, I'm faithful to my wife. I give what I should, a tenth of everything I owe. I'm a good person. But the kingdom person, the person that Jesus sees as vindicated in this story, is the scoundrel tax collector who cries out for mercy. In the third story, there's a group of infants, babies, little children, and a, and a group of disciples. And again, there's a contrast. Now, in this one, to be fair, we're not actually told that the infants cried. I'm, I'm assuming they did because that's what babies do. I've had four, I've met lots of others, and they all seem to cry. And if you have a large gathering of children, at least a handful of them are going to be crying. Uh, dis, you know, I mean, despite the stained glass, you know, it, it pictures and images of, the, of Jesus when he encountered these kids, some of them are going to be really going for it and really screaming it screaming, I suspect. And they cry out. Actually, in their case, they don't cry out for justice or for mercy. They're just crying out of sheer dependency. They're crying out because they need other people to feed them or give them a sleep or whatever. And so they cry out of dependency. But the disciples rebuke them and say, get them away from here. We don't need these around here bothering the master. And Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I want the children to come to me. In fact, if you don't come, become like them. If you don't become as needy and dependent and as in need of me to help you as these children, you're not going to enter the kingdom either. Now, the fourth story is the heart of the chapter. And in the fourth story, there are two rulers, usually Right? Usually we talk about the rich young ruler, but I'm trying to be a bit provocative and say I think that there are two rich young rulers in this story. There are two young men with huge wealth who have the option of leaving behind their wealth in order to pursue the kingdom. And one of them leaves the kingdom behind because he's got great wealth. And the other one leaves his heavenly wealth behind because he wants to pursue the great kingdom. 
And the contrast between these two, the one who goes to the cross and the one who won't leave his money, dominates the center of this chapter. And we'll come back to it towards the end. And then the fifth story, there's another contrast, a contrast between a blind man and a crowd. And again, the kingdom person cries out, right? The blind man is crying out for mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And they say, you know, shut up. Stop making such a fuss. But he cries out again all the louder, Jesus, have mercy on me. So I think it's, it's interesting that there are these five stories, and at one level, they are so different. But on another level, they have the same theme running through them. At one level, the stories are totally different because one is about prayer. The, the widow's story is really about prayer. The story about the tax collector is really about how sinners get justified before God. One of the stories is about children. One of the stories is about the cost of discipleship. And one of the stories is about a healing. It's about a blind man who gets his sight back. So in principle, you'd say that these are five completely different themes. But I think Luke has told them in a way is to emphasize the common thread that runs through certainly four of them. The one about Jesus is a, is a little different, but the common thread that runs through four of them, which is that, the king, is that kingdom people cry out. There are two types of people in this world, I think Luke wants us to see. On the one hand, you have powerful judges, moral religious people, pastors, people who who think they are upright citizens, good people, grown-up Christians, rich people, and crowds who are aware of the dynamics of awkwardness, people who are, no, 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 let's not not do anything that's embarrassing. At, At one level, you have all of those people who are kind of grouped together. And on the other hand, you have trampled widows, greedy collaborators, babies, awkward people, people with disabilities. And Luke has clustered them together like this and, 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 and then said, and the kingdom belongs to these people. The first group have it together. They're quiet, composed, ordered, appropriate, wealthy, privileged. And they say, shh, no, we don't, we don't need that when someone, you know, is making a noise. And on the other hand, you've got a group who are an absolute mess. They are pleading for justice. They're wailing in their car seats. They're howling for the mercy of God, and they don't care. And the kingdom belongs to the ones who cry out. Jesus said it himself, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's what Mary sang in the Magnificat before Jesus was even even born. He, he, he has thrown down the mighty from their seat and has exalted the humble and the meek. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich, sent them away empty. And that's what some of Christianity's fiercest critics have hated about Christianity. I mean, if you read the history 
of opposition to the Christian church, you will discover that in different generations, people hate the church for different things, right? In our generation, they might say, oh, the church is, you know, we hate the church because of that. A hundred years ago, it was something else, and a hundred years before that, it was something else. But, But quite a lot of Christianity's fiercest critics have hated the fact that Christianity is a religion in which the humble are exalted and the exalted are humbled. And one of the, the, the first major critics of Christianity we know of uh, who wrote and spoke to try and take the church down in the second century was a, was a man uh, called Celsus. And uh, uh, he dismissed Christianity as a religion fit only for children, slaves, and women. He said, for instance, this. He said, it is only foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children of whom the teachers of the divine word wish to make converts. In other words, Christianity is not befitting a wealthy, upstanding, educated man, he's saying. The only people who could possibly believe this nonsense are women, slaves, children, and people who can't think properly. That's what he's saying. And he was given a resounding rebuttal by the North African Church of Father Organ of, of, of Alexandria. In fact, Organ uh, wrote a book responding to Celsus, but the point, uh, on, you know, on the point he just made, uh, he wrote this, Truly it is no evil to have been educated, for education is the way to virtue. But to rank those amongst the number of educated who hold erroneous opinions is what even the wise men, the wise men among the Greeks would not do. That is, education's good. Education, it's to be commended. Jesus loves educated people, but let's not pretend that educated people don't believe stupid things because an awful lot of them do, and let's not even start making a list of that. In other words, the kingdom is for people who are going to say, actually, it, it's something to be commended about Christianity, that it, it's, it's, it's for both the educated and people that are not educated at all can come and find salvation in Jesus. But that objection to Christianity seems to have been one of the first things that people hated about the church. This is just for what Celsus would think. Uh, this is just for a lot of low-life scum. This is for people who shouldn't be included. And Christianity is vile because it's not valuing the things that should be valued and allowing all of these low lifes to come into the church. And we are many of those low lifes this morning. We praise God that God has allowed us in, but a lot of people have seen that about the church and disliked it. Sixteen centuries later, Friedrich Nietzsche one of the most powerful opponents of Christianity in the last 150 years, one of the sharpest, most aggressive, hostile, brilliant atheists that we've had to lock horns with over the last 150 years. He denounced Christianity as destructive because it was a slave morality. He said that what you've done as Christians is you've flipped what ought to be the natural order of things on its head. The natural order of things is strength and power. And what you've done is you've turned that on its head in favor of humility and weakness, which are these vile virtues that wouldn't, they, they, wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't be there if it wasn't things like Christianity saying that they're good. And he wrote this, Supposing that the absurd, the oppressed, the suffering, the unemancipated, the weary, and those uncertain of themselves should moralize, 
It's here that sympathy, the kind helping hand, the warm heart, patience, diligence, humanity, and friendliness attain to honor. Now, we might hear that, and we might think, yeah, that's great. But Nietzsche's saying, that's what's wrong with you people. You have taken what, sh- what, what, what should happen and the things that happen in the animal kingdom all the time, and you've turned it on your head and made virtues out of things that really only the weak should ever entertain and that they should be killed off. Now, both of those two men, Celsus and Nietzsche, hated Christianity. They blamed the gospel of Jesus Christ for all sorts of things. But listen, in many ways, they were right. The kingdom does turn morality upside down. The kingdom of God takes what the world has, you know, this way up. These are all the strong people on the top. These are the weak people on the bottom. And the kingdom of God just turns it upside down. And it says, well, now the people on the top uh, are on the bottom. And the people on the bottom are at the top. The weak, the people Nietzsche mentioned, the, the abused, the oppressed, the suffering, the unemancipated, the people at the bottom in the kingdom of God, these people, the humble, are exalted. It belongs to people who cry out. And notice that's not the same thing as saying that all social relationships are about power and privilege. And the world is made up of powerful groups and powerless groups. And all moral authority belongs to powerless groups. That's not quite the same thing, right? Partly because of our society's uh, Christian roots, you will find people saying that. They, they think that's what Jesus is saying. If you're at a university today or if you're on Twitter at all, you'll see this all the time. It's, very, it's a very prevalent thinking in our world. The world is divided up into the powerful who oppress everybody and the powerless who are oppressed. And our job is to turn it the other way up. And that's not quite what Jesus is saying. If you read this chapter carefully, you'll see that what the people who get exalted have in common and the people who get thrown down have in common is is that it's not actually about power or privilege or prominence. It's about pride. It's about pride. That's the problem Jesus is addressing. It's, It's not just that some people have more than others. No, it's the heart of the proud person that that Jesus says the proud person doesn't cry out. It's the needy, weak person, uh, the one who's in need of mercy who cries. And at that point, when they cry out, the humble become exalted. The dynamic here is that what Jesus is saying is essentially, my problem is not that some people have more than others. Although I'm I'm often going to turn those things on their head. My problem is with the pride that people have in their hearts that means that they don't think they even need God. I want people to be united by their common need of mercy. And if you read through the stories of, in this chapter, you'll notice what, what, what the unfavorable, you know, the sort of bad characters in the story have in common is actually pride. Not power or lack of it. The problem with the judge in the first story is not that he's got worldly power. The problem is that he doesn't fear God and he doesn't respect people. And even then, he still gives the widow justice like she asks. The problem with the Pharisee 
again, is not that he's got uh, wealth or worldly power. The, the Pharisees weren't especially wealthy in the main. He's not a stand-in for a rich man. The tax collector is, but he's not. He's actually a stand-in for pride. That's what Luke says in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's the problem. It's not that he's a wealthy man or even a powerful man. The Pharisees weren't actually that powerful formally. It's the fact that they were proud and they were hypocritical and they were trying to put us on a show to make themselves look better than other people. That's the problem. The problem with the rich young ruler is not that he's got money because the tax collector's got money as well. So does Zacchaeus uh, that we read about in the very next chapter. The problem with the rich young ruler is not that he's got money, it's that he's, is, is that he's prepared to give... He's not prepared to give his money up for the kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom. He's clinging on to his money for, his, for, for life. Even the disciples seem to be afflicted with pride, rebuking the children and, and telling them to go away. The, the same word is used for the crowd's reaction to the blind man. They rebuked him. The disciples rebuked the children and said, Shh, go away, stop, you know, stop being embarrassing. See, the problem with all of these characters is not their station in life. They're not all people of privilege at all, actually. The problem is is their pride. And on the other hand, the favorable characters in each story are characterized by humility. Not, Not by necessarily being, you know, belonging to an oppressed group. I mean, one of them is probably from an oppressive group, the, the tax collector, right? They're the collaborators. They're like the greedy bankers of our generation. But ultimately, all of these people, what they have in common is the fact that they cried out to God in humility, needing his help. And so the, the widow gets justice, not because she's a widow, but because she cries out day and night. The tax collector gets mercy not because he's from any particular social group. He's probably, as I say, very wealthy. But, but he realizes what he's done wrong and he senses his own brokenness and sin and he cries out to God to have mercy upon him, a sinner, and he asks for forgiveness. Likewise, the children come to Jesus. It's not like Jesus saying, hey, you need to be very, very young, and the younger you are, the more sanctified you are. No, Jesus is saying, if you like, you need to come into the kingdom with the humility and neediness of little children. And the blind man is healed because he ignores the shush of the crowd and cries out for mercy. You see, these people don't have much in common in many ways, but they are united by their humility, their need for God. For the rich, powerful tax collector, to the, from, from, from that individual to the poor, powerless widow, they need God. They cry out for justice, for forgiveness, independency, for mercy. We don't need to be oppressed to inherit the kingdom. Listen, that's good news for many of us because many of us are not. Many of us have have got in worldly terms a lot of wealth and a lot of power. But what we do need to do is humble ourselves before God. For everyone who, who exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 14. The 
kingdom belongs to those who cry. You might be a poor widow or a rich tax collector. You might be a baby who can see or an adult who can't see. But we are simply required to humble ourselves and cry out to God, God, have mercy on me. And he always does, right? He stops, he welcomes, he gives justice to the widow, and he gives mercy to the blind man, and he forgives, forgives forgiveness to the sinner. And, and, and he does all of those things because of the cross, which is at the heart of this chapter, verses 32 to 33. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Our cry to God as we humble ourselves before him, listen, our cries are answered by God who humbled himself and cried out, on the cross. So our cry for justice, like the widow, is echoed by the cries of the crucified Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's Jesus entrusting himself to the Father that he will be vindicated. I want deliverance. I even want justice, but Lord, I'm entrusting myself to you. Our cry for forgiveness like the, the cry of the tax collector is, is met by the cry from the cross. I, I call out, Lord, would you please forgive me because I'm a sinner. And I hear the, cro- the, the cry from the cross, from the, the crucified Christ, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. We cry out like babies in sheer dependence in the same way that a little infant does. We don't just cry out of need, because of needing something to drink. Uh, but we are... Every cry we have is met in the cross. The, 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 from the cross, we hear the cry of sheer dependence of the Lord Jesus who said, I thirst. He knows what it's like to be in need. And so he knows how to meet our needs when we cry out to him in dependency. And our cry for mercy, like the cry of this blind man, Jesus, please stop. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Our cry for mercy is met by the merciful cry of the crucified Christ. I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. But there is one final cry from the cross. It's a victory cry. It's a, it's a victory cry that guarantees that that we will find all of the mercy and all of the forgiveness and all of the justice that we have ever cried for and will ever need. And you know what that final cry is, don't you? It is finished. Listen, because he humbled himself, he was highly exalted. And on the basis of the finished work of that victory, that not just being spat upon and shamefully treated and handed over and killed, but the the fact that he rose on the third day, on the basis of that, he invites all who cry, all who need God, to come and feast at his table, to express dependency on him, to ask him if it need be for justice, to ask him for forgiveness, to ask him for mercy, to help us in our time of need. And so we're going to come to a close by coming to the Lord's table this morning and receiving gifts from him, bread and wine representing the body and blood of Jesus.
so we can find uh, the answers to the things that we cry out to God for. Uh, But before we do so, I'd love to lead us in a prayer, if I may. Uh, You'll find this prayer in your worship guide. In a moment, we're going to come to the table, and this is something that we... We'd love you to join us in if you are a repentant believer uh, in Jesus. If you say, I repent of my sin, I trust in Jesus. Uh, you may not normally come to this church. You may be part of another church that proclaims the gospel. But you'd be very welcome uh, to come and join us at the Lord's table this morning. But if you're not a repentant, uh, repentant of your sin, if, if there's stuff in your life that you say, oh no, I don't want God to, to, to do anything about that. Or if you don't believe Uh, in Jesus, and we'd ask you to sit this one out, because this is a Christian meal. This is something for those who are wanting to come to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness, and if you are crying out to God for those things, uh, we'd love you to join us this morning uh, around this table, and before we do so, we're just going to pray this uh, prayer together. Uh, It's my favorite prayer in the Book of Common Prayer. It's an Anglican prayer, uh, but it's a beautiful way of approaching the Lord's Supper, and it, and it puts into words really well uh, what Jesus is teaching us in Luke 18. Let's pray together. We do not presume to come to this table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, But you are the same Lord, whose character is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. Amen.